So you mentioned my name is Simon Stokes. Uh, my wife and I have lived here in the area for the last two or three years. We have a beautiful baby girl named Emery. She's a year old now. As I look across uh, the congregation, there are several people here I know, several I don't know. Um, if you'd like to hear more about uh, our ministry and what we do uh, afterwards, I'd love to talk with you about it. Um, but essentially, just kind of 5,000 view picture, um, what we do is we go on campus, we preach and teach God's word, we love college students where we're at. We have the great privilege of standing with people who are kind of at the crossroads of life and help them to understand what it is to, to follow Jesus um, with the gifts that he's given you, with the vocation that he's given you, um, with the, the person of who you are uh, throughout life. Because um, we really see college as a time to prep for you to go out into the world and to love and serve people in his kingdom, to love and serve people in whatever job he's called you into, and to love and serve people in whatever um, family he's called you into. So it's a huge privilege to do that. We're grateful to do it. Um, and we're glad for the prayers, the support that this church gives us, and uh, just the opportunity to love and minister in your name. Um, so let me get started here. If you would turn your bulletin to the, uh, the scripture reading for today. As you turn, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I recently saw a documentary on Netflix called Inside North Korea, and the whole premise of this documentary is this, that there's a doctor who leaves the United States and travels to North Korea with the vision of doing 1,000 cataract surgeries in 10 days. 100 surgeries a day, every day for 10 days. And he gets there and he goes at it. He gets up really, really early in the morning. He works all day and goes to bed late at night. And all he does is do these surgeries all day, each day. And at the end of the documentary, he's done it. He's done 1,000 cataract surgeries in 10 days. A pretty impressive feat. And so at the end of it, what he does is he has all the people he's done the surgery on come into a large kind of hall, and at the back there's these big wooden double doors. People are sitting on these long wooden benches, and at the very front of it, kind of on kind of a raised dais, are these two portraits of the dictators of North Korea, looking out over the people, very stern and solemn. And the doctor starts at the back and goes forward, and he very tenderly, very gingerly, very gently undoes the bandages from around people's eyes. He removes the gauze. He wipes away some of the medicine that's been there. He checks each pupil. And what's amazing is that each person, one after the other after the other, gets up, brushes past the doctor who's done the cataract surgery, runs up to the front of the room, and starts jumping up and down in front of the portraits of the dictators of North Korea, yelling, thank you, great general, thank you, great general, for restoring my sight, for giving me my sight back. One of the most poignant of these was a young woman who, at the very end, one of the last people to go, she'd been blind from cataracts almost since she was uh, born. She'd seen almost nothing her entire life. And so the doctor does the same thing as he'd done with all the rest, as he removed the bandages, removes the gauze, checks her eyes. She runs past him, runs up to the portrait, says, Thank you, great general. Thank you, great general, for restoring my sight. Now I can work harder for you in the salt mines to get you more salt and to bring you more happiness. And y'all, this is such a picture of what we're trying to free people from. But if we're not careful, we can treat the one true and living God as though he were the dictator and not the doctor. You see, the real question for us, the real question for the church is this. Is what is God like when you actually see him? What is he like when you actually get to know him? Is he just trying to make us stronger, more independent, more able to handle things on our own? 
And certainly, there's a component to growing to maturity where we become progressively holier, progressively wiser. But what does that holiness look like? And how does that wisdom act? And what's really at stake here is this, is who, who is shaping that holiness and that wisdom? Is it man? Or is it God? Because it will be one or the other. You can't have both. And one will make you feel like you've ended up in the salt mines. And the other will set you free. So before we begin, let me just say this. A professor of mine uh, defined wisdom like this. He said that wisdom is the art of godly living. Wisdom is just the art of godly living. And the ultimate example of godly living is Jesus. He's God's wisdom made flesh and blood in history. And the history on the page is this, is that God became a man, and he died, and he rose from the dead, not only to love us and make us able to love, but also to show us the art of love. And as Christians, that is the wisdom that we're called to attend to. And Paul says here that what's amazing about God's wisdom is that he's shown this in absolute weakness. That Jesus, naked and nailed to a piece of wood, praying for his enemies, bleeding, struggling to breathe, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is stronger and wiser than the best of what human civilization can put forward. So here in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to a church so in one of the wealthiest, most cultured, most multicultural cities in the Roman Empire. Lots of these people are very well educated. Lots of them are tied to business, to government, to the arts. Lots are not. Lots are very blue-collar people. And yet for all of their multiculturalism, for all of their achievements, there's still these dysfunctional, divided Christians who are trying to figure out who is smarter, who is more religious, who is more hardworking than the person next to them, which means in some ways he's really saying something to all of us, and something that we struggle with every day. So this morning, I want to talk about three things, three things here. What is worldly wisdom? What is the wisdom of the cross? And how do we get true wisdom? What's worldly wisdom? What's the wisdom of the cross? And how do we get true wisdom? So let me read 1 Corinthians 1. 18 to 31, and we'll be get going here. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification 
and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me pray for us and we'll get going. Lord Jesus, I pray you would come and be with us today. Lord, I pray that you would be clothing for those who are naked. Lord, that you would be bread for those who are hungry, living water for the thirsty. Lord, that you'd be life for those who are dead. Lord, give us eyes to see or we are blind. Give us ears to hear or we are deaf. Lord, raise us. Guide us. Lead us into your joy that we would know and follow you. Help us to understand the great paradox of Christianity, that the way up is down. Lord, the way forward is back. Lord, the way into life is by dying to ourselves. Lord, apart from your work, we cannot do these things. But with you, all things are possible. Would you give us yourself, your wisdom, your power, your grace today? In your name we pray, amen. Look at verse 20 here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What is worldly wisdom? What's worldly wisdom? We will be more efficient. We will get more done. The people in charge will be more educated than the guys down the street. I serve other people, but I don't need other people to serve me. Worldly wisdom is more about your doing and your knowing than it is about God's doing and his loving. You know who I think this would be hard for? Who would this be hard for? What if you grew up in a household where there was this kind of unspoken rule that said, hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And nobody ever said that to you. It wasn't crocheted on a napkin and hung in your kitchen. But it was there, and you could feel it. That hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And maybe as you grew up, you could never quite get that joke off right. You never knew really how to fit in with the in crowd. You didn't know exactly how to dress or what to say or what to do. And you may not be the most popular, but when you could be the smartest. And when it came to working hard, you were a go-getter. And people could trust you with a task because you were going to do whatever it took to get things done. And you planned and you executed and you got results and you really drank deeply of that unspoken rule that hard work is how we're going to be okay. We don't make mistakes. And you come to a great church like Christ Central and you hear things like, you don't have to work to get into this family. And God loves you apart from your work. And you like that and you needed that. Because you've needed to hear that your whole life. But at the same time you come in here and you have both the message of God's grace and that old rule, butting heads, that hard work is how we're going to be okay. Do you feel that tension between those things? Man, I feel that all the time. Look at verse 22 here. Jews want signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. When it comes to wisdom, the real question is, whose wisdom will it be? Is it wisdom that depends upon man and his work, or is it wisdom that depends upon God and his work? Because the Bible is super clear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That true wisdom begins with him. And in Paul's mind, though, what do the Greeks and what do the Jews have in common? The smartest people and the most religious people. What do those folks have in common? The need to be in control. 
The need to have the power to say, this is how it's done. And that might mean how many times we pray, or that might be feeling like we'll only start to trust God. We can understand all the reasons for why we lost our job, or why we're not married, or why scripture puts boundaries on my desires and what I can and can't do. Religious people say, we will control our religious standing. I will go on whatever trip you tell me to go on. I will pray whatever prayer you tell me to pray. I will read what I need to read, but let me know what I need to do so I can make sure I'm covering all my bases. Worldly power says that we will control our schedule, our accomplishments. We'll know exactly how everything works. And both of these things live in effect as though there is no God. And so we will be our own God. Religion based on man's wisdom wants to see that you've got religious results. You know, if we're doing this thing right, then of course hundreds of people are just going to be streaming in. Maybe. Maybe not. When I read the Bible, I don't get the sense that God is a numbers guy. A savior that chose 12 disciples, one of which he knew from the get-go is just going to betray him, doesn't come off to me as somebody who frets about the numbers. Or the guy who told the parable of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go out and get that one lost, inefficient sheep doesn't seem to me like he's driven by efficiency or progress reports. God cares about more than people's efficiency. True wisdom's measure can't be based only on external results. You know, numbers can be a sign that you're doing something right. Being organized is a great way to grow an organization. But here's my caution for you. That to be driven by numbers, to be driven by our ability to organize, that is a recipe for spiritual death. Because it looks more at what you're doing than at who God is and what he cares about and how he's working in this church and in Durham and in the world. So if that's the wisdom of the world, what's the wisdom of the cross? Look at verse 18 here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. You know, I grew up in South Alabama in a place that was really swampy, really hot, really humid. Essentially, I mean, we had two seasons, hot and hotter. Uh, We had no winter. Uh, uh, Basically, 100 years ago, somebody drained a swamp, built some buildings, and said, this is your town. So that's where I grew up. And a little ways north of of my hometown, my family had a little bit of hunting land, and at one point along the way, some beavers got on that hunting land. And in a place that's already hot and humid and swampy, when beavers get onto the land, I mean, they're going to do what beavers do, which is gnaw down some trees, build a dam, uh, water's going to start rising. A place that's already hot and humid and kind of swampy is only going to become more so. And all the wildlife that was there just gets driven out. Like, the water that was flowing through there and cleaning everything out gets blocked and nasty and just dark and dank. It's full of old, rotting things. And so my dad really felt kind of backed into a corner by these beavers. And in pre-9-11 Alabama, you could buy dynamite with just a driver's license and no prior convictions. And so one Saturday, that's what he did. And he took me and my brothers out to these beaver dams, and we took post hole diggers, dug a hole, duct taped the dynamite together, popped a fuse in there, buried it, walked about 200 yards back, lit the fuse, waited about two minutes, and then two minutes later, boom! 
a huge just mushroom cloud of dirt and water and you know probably a little bit of beaver goes up into the air and just a few seconds later just rains down this fine mist on your face and as a 12 year old kid that was awesome and probably led into some other like related fireworks stuff later on but I tell that story because of this that if worldly wisdom and focusing on our actions for Christ creates this stunted, dank, dark, hypocritical faith. Then Jesus and the word of his cross explodes that thing to give you a living, vibrant, winsome faith that sustains you and other people. How? With his wisdom. With his wisdom. You know, one of the things that makes the Bible such a true book is that it doesn't flinch from how hard the world is. If anything, the Bible is really, really brutally honest about how messed up and broken creation is. And the Bible is super honest that when God visited his people, that he was rejected. And it wasn't because he didn't prove himself. It wasn't because he wasn't wise. His whole life was meant as a proof of who he was. You know, in his quality of life, Jesus was blameless. He could publicly demand in front of his disciples, in front of his family, in front of his friends, the people he eats and sleeps and works with every day. If anyone here has ever seen me sin, speak up. Silence. Nobody had anything on that guy. Can you imagine if you were to do that in front of your friends and coworkers? Like it would just be a thicket of arms. Like, yeah, I've definitely seen you sin. No one taught like he taught. No one said the things that he said. Memorable sayings, parables just fell off his lips. Jesus could interpret scripture and make connections that no one else had ever made. And he has no teacher. No one can say, well, you learned this from so-and-so. Jesus Christ is a disciple of no one. The miracles that he does, walking on water, power over evil spirits, making blind people to see, deaf people to hear, He has power that makes the world more like the kind of place that it's supposed to be. And none of it is for him. It's all for other people. He never does a miracle for himself. People were aware of the claims that Jesus is making. Of the power and the wisdom that's meant to back up those claims. It's not like his ministry is done in a corner and yet he's still rejected. Because his wisdom doesn't look like how people expected it to look. They wanted it. They got a king, but he's a servant king. And ultimately, he's a crucified king. And what people have never understood about Jesus, not then and not now, is that he is a king who takes his wisdom and his power, and he makes himself absolutely naked. And he brings himself to a place of shame and weakness so that he can pray for the people who hate him and who are disappointed that he doesn't get along with their program. And so that he can make his enemies into God's children. And to those who are perishing, that looks like folly. But to those who would be saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, for forever, people have been taking their wisdom and their power, their prayer life, how nice they are, how hard they work. And we've been taking those things before ourselves, before other people, and before God, and essentially saying, Do you like me now? Am I enough for you? Am I enough for myself? And we've tried to make ourselves clean and right and whole, but those things do not have the power to do that. They are never enough. 
But when God came and He took His power and His glory and His wisdom, He used those things to drive Himself all the way to the bottom and to die the death of the cross. And He did the very thing that we, with all of our hard work and our niceness and our degrees and our money, could never do. He reconciled us to Himself. And He reconciled us to our neighbors. And He even reconciled us to ourselves. So if Jesus Christ has died for you and says you're okay, man, you're free to go. It doesn't matter what other people think of you. You can give yourself to other people. You can work hard not for yourself, but for others, and it won't inflate you. It won't wear you out. Or you can be little and never do something that in the eyes of the world is great, and yet God looks at it and smiles and is happy. Because Jesus has died for you and reconciled you to himself. And if you're sitting here and thinking, yeah, but I don't like that. I don't want that for myself. You know, if you don't want the power of the cross, then just never give your heart to another person. And never forgive another person. And never trust God. And never trust other people. And always rely on your hard work and your degrees to get you through life. And if you don't want the wisdom of the cross, then never repent to a parent or to a spouse because then they would know that you're a sinner. And don't ever let your kids dabble in Christianity. Not even for a minute, because they might become a missionary and live on the other side of the world. Or they might really love another person to the point of suffering for that person. But if you do want Jesus' wisdom, and you do want his power, then humble yourself and look to the wisdom of the God of the cross. You know, if the wisdom of the cross shows us anything, it's that vulnerability is powerful and can change the world. And that it's wise to love and give yourself to people even when you know they're going to sin against you. Don't look to your intelligence. Don't look to your beauty. Don't look to your money to get you through life and keep you safe. Our hope as Christians is not that if we're good and we're hardworking, we'll be safe. Because God has said that safe is not enough for you. Our hope is that through God's work on the cross, we'll be made new. And we'll be part of making everything around us new. And that is the wisdom and the power that is just poured into this church and poured into you through the gospel. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Look at verse 24 here. To those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Wait, wait, wait. I thought the Jews and the Greeks were the very people who thought this was stupid. God calls the very people that think his wisdom is foolish. God is so good that he goes out and he gets those people by his work. He gets the people who are lost. He gets the people who are self-confident, who are proud. And he brings them to himself. Look at verses 26 through 29 here. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The beauty of the gospel is the freedom to be in apart from your intelligence or lack thereof, to be in apart from your hard work or lack thereof. 
Hard work is how you're going to be okay. But it's not your hard work. It's God's on your behalf. The gospel eradicates our pride because it takes away the sense of control of God's affection for you. The religious person isn't in because of their prayer life or because of their missionary zeal. The smart person isn't in because they suddenly got the logic of it all. The goodness of the gospel is that God loves you and is is affectionate towards you because he's good. And he's so good that the only thing he asks of you to get in is you'd ask him to be let in. And he's so good that even if you don't know how to ask that, or how to want to ask that, that he will give you that desire. He gives you the very thing that he demands. That's how good our God is. All right, so how do we change then? How do we change? If the problem is, I want to be in control, and I want to be the wise person who sits on the mountain and kind of hands out knowledge... Or, I want to be the spiritual person who's fixing the world, but doesn't need God or doesn't need other people to help me. Like, how do I actually change? How do I become wise? Do I just will that? Do I just make that happen? Do I just need to read the right thing? No. Look at what Paul says here in verse 30. Go to the source. Go to the source. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. God is the source of your life in Christ. And Christ is everything. He is the one who makes you wise. He is the one who makes you right with God. He's the one who makes you clean. He's the one who redeems you. He makes you wise, but he gives you more than wisdom. He makes you right with God, and he makes you holy. Jesus does everything. So if you want to change, go to him. And if you don't know how to do that, then pray to him, God, I'm helpless. Approach me, please. Is he that good? He's good enough to die for you. He's good enough to pray for his enemies on a cross. Why wouldn't he be good enough to give you what you need? To gain his wisdom. To be as right with God as he is. To be as clean with God as he is. To be redeemed. So take the person that you are now to God in prayer and ask him to receive you. Not the person that you hope to be, not the person you think you should be, but your actual in-this-moment self. And take your guilt and your fear and your doubt and your boredom with religious stuff and your desire to fix people to him and read what his word has to say about those things. And do that over and over, and you won't have found another thing to do along with all the other things you've got to do in a very busy schedule. You will have found the best thing. You will have found the one true and living God. The God who promises to make even foolish, self-reliant people wise. I'll end with this. I heard a story recently that's told by a very old man named Hector Black. He served in World War II. He graduated from Harvard, class of 1949. And he tells a story of the greatest act of forgiveness that he ever had to do. See, Hector and his family were Quakers, and during the Civil Rights Movement, they moved to Atlanta to work alongside of Martin Luther King. And while they were there, they came to know another family around Ebenezer Baptist Church. And this family had no father. The mother was kind of around, but she was an alcoholic. 
And so Hector and his wife really got to know the kids there, and they got to be very close with them. And years kind of rolled on, and eventually it just kind of came to be time for Hector and his family to move on uh, and move away from Atlanta. And as they were moving, one of the daughters from this other family approached him and his wife, and she said, you know, I really don't have anything here. Would it be okay if I came and I joined your family and I was your daughter? And Hector and his wife prayed about it, and they thought about it, and they made sure it was legal. And they said, yeah, come on. So this little girl moves in with them, and she, for all intents and purposes, becomes their daughter. She graduates from high school, she goes on to college, and she became a librarian working uh, in an inner-city public library back in Atlanta, helping children like she had been to read and break the cycle of poverty. But Hector says that one night she came home, and she surprised a cracked addict while he was robbing her house. And that man murdered her. And Hector talked about how much he hated this man at first. That he had taken away his daughter. And their family had known death, but never death like this. Never death at the hands of another human being. And eventually the man was caught. But Hector, instead of giving himself over to his pain and his rage, work to try to understand this man and his story, to know him and to know what had shaped him. And he did this not to excuse his actions because there was no excuse, but to learn how to try to have compassion on this man. He wanted, if he could, to separate this awful thing that this man had done against his daughter and his family from the man himself. And at the trial, the man was given life without the possibility of parole. And then the family was given an opportunity to say something. Like, what do you say at something like that? Hector got up and he said how much he loved his daughter. And how even though she wasn't their daughter by any claim of birth, she was their daughter by every claim of love. And then he turned to the man and he faced him and he said, I wish for all those who've been wounded by this horrible crime that they would find God's peace. And he pointed at the man and he said, I wish this especially for you. And he said that as their eyes met for the first time, tears were streaming down the man's cheeks. And Hector said, I'll never forget the look in his eyes. That it was like looking into a soul in hell. And the man wept saying, I am so sorry for the pain that I've caused you and your family. And Hector knew that in that moment, this man who'd come from the streets, who was going to prison, who had nothing and would never have anything in the world, had given him the one thing that he did have which was his sorrow over his sin. He'd asked him to forgive him. And Hector said that over time, he felt like he could kind of come to understand him. He could feel like he could start to forgive him. So he and his wife started to write letters to his daughter's murderer in prison. And they went to go visit him. And they prayed with him. And they hugged him. And they even sent Christmas gifts. Gifts to the man who'd murdered their daughter. And he said that he knew that it sounded crazy, but that when you start to forgive someone, you can start to care about someone. He realized that when you hate, it's like you're taking poison into yourself and expecting the other person to die. And it was through forgiveness that both of these men could start to live again. With terrible loss, absolutely. But with life as well. And I tell this story because I don't wish this sort of suffering on anyone. But I tell it because I hear a story like that. 
And I have to ask, is it wise to give Christmas gifts to the man who murdered your daughter? It depends on whose wisdom it is. Only God's wisdom looks honestly at the terrible things in the world and at his enemies and says, you are forgiven. You are free. And he is our wisdom. He is our right standing. He's what makes us clean. He is the one who redeems us. And that comes not because we summon that up inside of ourselves, but because God has placed himself on a cross, surrounded by his enemies, betrayed by his friends, and shed his blood so that he could look at you at you and say you are as right with me as my son there is no condemnation for you any anger any frustration any disappointment it has been poured out on jesus and all of my welcome all of my joy all of my love i dump into your lap you are free and if that is what is meant for God to be wise and powerful. And let us turn to him and learn that wisdom as well.